So first question, how would you define, quote, gut feeling, unquote? What is it and what is it not? So my understanding of the gut feeling is kind of your intuition. You feel something. It's kind of influencing you. and You're uncomfortable with something. But you can't quite figure out why yet. And, and the most the thing that, as I've researched this, that makes most sense to me, the left part of the brain, the left hemisphere of your brain, is where you reason, strategize, plan, have conscious awareness, where facts are, where you go, oh, I understand these things. That's left side. Right side of the brain is where we have a sense of awareness of what's going on around us, connecting with other people, um, uh, uh, and, um, and the two sides of the brain actually operate at different speeds, different hertz of processing information. The right side is about, I don't remember the exact speeds, but the right side of the brain processes data at a faster speed than the left side of the brain does. And so this gut feeling is often that your right brain is picking up on something that your left brain has not yet landed on, and you're getting an intuition gut feeling that something is off here, something's not right. So it might be you're talking with somebody, and your right brain is picking up on, say, some facial expressions, some twitching, uh, some some look in the eye, some nonverbal cues that your right, your left brain hasn't really identified or noticed, but your your right brain is, and so and. And those are signaling that this something is inconsistent. Something is not right here. And so you pick up on that, and and that's what a gut feeling uh, most reasonably is, in my understanding. And and I tell people to listen to the gut feeling. If you have something you really feel uncomfortable about, step back, pray about it, reflect on it, and 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 in that both prayer and time, you often allow your left brain to process what your right brain was picking up on, and you will have these epiphanies and goes, oh, okay, now I see. And uh, so I encourage you to not necessarily ignore gut feelings, but but still make decisions that are reason and evidence-based, but often give yourself some more time to reflect on why you're having a gut feeling. Next, it says, I was reading the pamphlet uh, on meditation. That's the one that our ministry put out. And got to the part where you talk about breathing and selfishness uh, of keeping your carbon dioxide to yourself. I understand the meaning, but it's not a very tempting example of selfishness. In other words, m- not many of us struggle with the desire to keep our carbon dioxide to ourselves. Can you give an example uh, where giving up something desirable or which we would be tempted to withhold results in reciprocation and, or the continuous cycle? So... First off, the way the example is described, I use purposely the example of something that everyone would want to naturally keep doing to show that going against it is unhealthy. So that's why I use that example. And that, and I use the example about how that uh, the breathing cycle, we give away carbon dioxide to the plants, the plants give oxygen to us, that even though that's the way it is, we still have the freedom, if we choose, to put a plastic bag over our health heads and selfishly hoard that's still an act of selfishness because you're hoarding to self and not sharing anymore and what does it do it harms you so we don't define selfishness as things that that are only good for us in fact it's probably not the case there's anything that selfish is good for us selfishness is harmful this one this one example really demonstrates it and we don't have much desire for it but you want examples of where we would be doing something selfish, violating that, not giving away something we should be giving away, and it feels good not to do it. Well, how about not giving grace or forgiveness to someone who's wronged you, and instead you harbor bitterness and resentment and fantasies about hurting them? Uh, boy, it feels good. 
feels good to retaliate and punch them, make sure they get their own. That feels really good. When I should be giving grace. How about giving love to someone who's unlovable? Do we find that that, or is it sometimes the same way? So I would tell you when you look at the principles of God's kingdom and what we are to be giving to others, grace, love, forgiveness, kindness, understanding, patience, uh, the fruits of the Spirit, the things we're to be giving away, it often feels better to the carnal self not to give those things away. But but holding on to resentment and bitterness and, and so forth actually harms us neurobiologically and physiologically as well as characterologically. So I think that would be a good example. Uh, early in Patriarchs and Prophets, it talks about Lucifer being in a position higher than other angels. In a sinless world, why would he be... Uh, why would he be in a place of power and authority over his peers? Why wouldn't they all be uh, created equal? So it's a very interesting question. I appreciate the question because within this question is woven in a lot of things that are actually not stated in Patriarchs and Prophets. I encourage you to go back and read Patriarchs and Prophets. And you'll find uh, that, that what happens is certain words we immediately filter through the human imperial law construct of authority. What it actually says in Patriarchs and Prophets is that Lucifer is honored above others. In, uh, and he had a position of honor, okay? Uh, and, and in God's kingdom, if you understand how it works, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God according to Jesus? Those who love the most, those who give the most, those who sacrifice the most. So Jesus, when all power was given to him in John 13, got up and washed dirty feet. This is what the greatest in the kingdom of God do. They're the greatest in service to others. So evidently, Lucifer was honored because up to the point he rebelled, he was the greatest in serving and loving and giving and sacrificing and sharing and bearing truth. It's, it's likely that he, as the name light bearer, he came in his personal journey to have greater insights and greater light and greater understanding to God's character up to the point he rebelled and rejected these things. And thus he was honored because he served others in great ways. So the question, though, in, in, intrudes the idea that he was given authority to rule over. That's how we hear words like that because we're so conditioned to it. So I think it's a great question. Uh, and, and they all were created equal as far as I, I can tell. There's another aspect though, even though they're created equal, it doesn't mean they were all created at the same time. And uh, Adam, for instance, was created before Eve. And so there's the aspect that Lucifer is called son of the dawn meaning that he may be the first intelligent being God created of all created beings. It, it, it's implied. It's not stated. And there, that would give him more time, and time for created beings are opportunities for growth and development. And so he may have had more time, and he also may have been around to see more of what God had done in God's creation than other beings like ourselves who came along much later. We weren't there when the universes were created or other angels were created and so forth. And so all those elements together suggest that Lucifer advanced not because of some artificial position of authority granted to him by God, but because of the natural results of his own choices and experiences. I know that God has given us the gift of choice. I know that God has given us the gift of choice, but a lot of our choices can affect other people because and because smoking is a financial issue, can a spouse tell her tell their spouse to stop smoking because they don't agree with their finances going toward buying cigarettes? What do y'all think about that? 
so I would I would say this to the to the to the questioner. What would you do if you told your spouse you had concerns about the finances, and the spouse empathize with those because there's financial concerns and they don't reject that and they say yeah you we've got financial concerns you've got you've got a good point about finances and they have a smoking buddy and they tell their smoking buddy you know we've got some real financial concerns and i enjoy our times together smoking together but but my 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 spouse has suggested that this is something that that i need to give up because we can't afford it and you're smoking and, the, and their smoking buddy says to them no worries I, I enjoy our time together too as a Christmas gift, I will buy you one year's worth of cigarettes every year for, from now on so you can keep smoking with me. If your buddy, if, you, if your spouse came home and told you, no worries, I'm going to get free cigarettes for life, would you go, okay, smoke as much as you want. Smoking's good. Fine with me. Or would you go, oh, there's a problem here still. So the point I'm making by this analogy is, if your only concern here is truly financial, then bring up your argument about finances with your spouse. But if your real concern is about them smoking, going at it through finances is a losing track because it's not honest. It's trying to make the issue something it's not. Make the issue what it is. You're concerned about their health or the fact it stinks or the fact that you don't like your car smelling this way or whatever other reason it is. Talk on the merits of what is really the truth that troubles you about it. Uh, finances may be a small piece of it, but I suggest if you took that piece away uh, that you would still have problems with the person that you love smoking. And I think you need to deal with it on its merits. First, uh, a comment, then a question. Uh, David could not be one of the 24 elders in Revelation vision because Peter's statement about him in Pentecost sermon, Acts 2, David is not yet ascended. Hey, I appreciate that. That's a great point and we were talking last week in our class about trying to imagine uh, who might be some of the resurrected souls that went up to with heaven with jesus and maybe sitting on those 24 thrones and we were identifying some of the heroes of the old testament we suggested well maybe david and this person points out well according to peter that couldn't be because peter actually said in acts 2 which was after the uh, ascension uh, and the resurrection of those 500 or those souls that went with jesus uh David is not yet ascended. So that's a good point. David wouldn't be one of those. Thanks for that clarification. That, that little detail, I, I, it slipped my mind at the time. The, uh, and then it goes on. The Apostle Paul, in his discourse on spiritual gifts concerning speaking in tongues, made the, the statement that miracles, tongues, are for the unbeliever, not the believer. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Whereas prophecy is for the believer. Does quote, faith come by hearing and hearing the word of God, quote, apply here. I mean, I've never needed miracles to confirm my belief, or am I just weird in that way? No, I, I think that the point here being is that those who don't have a personal experience with God and they don't believe in him already, they often will need something spectacular to get them to inquire or pursue the question. And in Paul's day, there was lots of superstitious beliefs, and miracles were often used to bring the attention of pagan believers to God for inquiry. But true belief does not come through miracles, because miracles can be counterfeited. True belief comes from the truth itself. And thus, those who are believers and have a knowledge of God don't need miracles to confirm that belief. They they know it because they know the truth itself. And that's what the word is. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, and that's the truth. So I think that you're not weird. I think that's uh, mature Christianity. I have several people that I witness to at work. Many have a background in Christianity, but little knowledge of the scriptures. One lady in particular is from a Catholic background and is currently reading the Great Controversy. 
her husband has just op- was just offered a job out of state and has accepted the position. I would like to direct her to a local church, but I'm concerned about the message she will be exposed to there. Any suggestions? I wish more people were registered at the Come Reason database. Uh, I would like to find uh, someone to connect her to locally. Uh, sadly, I don't have any suggestions. Uh, I, I, you could put that out uh, to uh, to the Facebook uh, when we're broadcasting on Facebook each week. There's a lot of people following. You can put that out. Anybody in this area and see if you get any response. Um, you can uh, you know send an inquiry to uh, to Francesca and see if she knows. But I, I don't have any suggestions. I'm I'm sorry. Recent conversations with uh, Christian friends around the state of the dead. One friend, an ex-Adventist, now believes our souls go to heaven when we die. I can't find your answer on this on your website. Can you answer briefly, please, how to explain the deception around this, please? Uh, Also, I'm finding very sincere Christians with good hearts being deceived by false prophets and the prophetic word. I'm being challenged to be able to give a thus saith the Lord answer. So, Right now on our website, the document is it still on our website? Adine, you can answer this question. I haven't looked in a while, but the investigative judgment for the modern world, I think that's still there. If you look, just put investigative judgment, you'll find that document. You can download a PDF, you can read it online, you can um, actually get one mailed to you if you have a U.S. postal address. In that document, we deal with this question ex- extensively about what happens to the dead. Uh, when they die, and what is the soul, and and where does the soul go, and and what state is it in, and all of that, and it's uh, really a lengthy and well-referenced answer, and that one has a lot of um, uh, Adventist historic references to it as well. We have a new document about Christ cleansing his bride that will be coming out in the next few weeks, before Christmas we'll have it out, and that one also will have this information in it without any of the historic Adventist references that can be shared with any Christian and will also answer those questions. How do you explain Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt and apparent striking of Ananias and Sapphira through the design law lens? And then there's added a later, and how would you ex- explain the striking of Herod when Peter's prison, uh, uh, when Peter was delivered from prison, and so forth? So uh, I would encourage you to go read the blogs on the website on. Uh, the flood and why God uh, sent the flood and what the flood was all about. Uh, design law does not mean that God does not take action related to first death experiences and putting people to sleep in the first death. Uh, the second death, eternal death, is where design law is in operation. Yeah, but first death experiences, God in many places through scripture used his power to put people in the state of what the Bible calls sleep, or you might call it suspended animation, or you could say a conscious timeout. He just turned the switch off, and he will turn the switch back on again at a later time, and they will continue their life from the moment the switch was turned off. And uh, God's actions, when he takes actions in these ways, are always related to redemption and keeping the plan of salvation open. And they're never related to actually punishing of sin. Uh, because the punishment of sin does not come out from God. The punishment of sin, according to Scripture, comes from sin. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. That's the eternal death that we talked about, uh, the second death, not the sleep death. So I encourage you to read that. You can also type in Ananias, and you will find a blog about that on our website as well called, I think, The Sword of God. Uh, and it goes into some details, uh, additional details. 
What are your thoughts concerning the special resurrection of the wicked and the righteous, including those that slept in death, proclaiming the third angel's message? Uh, special resurrection is inferred or described in Scripture when Jesus talks about those who uh, who um, crucified him will see him sitting at the right hand of his Father coming in glory, or in Revelation where it says, uh, every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. Uh, so this idea of his crucifiers being raised to see the second coming, and then they go back into the, the sleep state to be raised at the end of the thousand years when they go to build implements of war and march on the city. Um, I just think it's a piece of uh, biblical um, revelation, and it's a process that's going to happen. I don't really have much comment on it. What parallels do you find between uh, baptism and marriage? Uh, It's interesting. Baptism and marriage both have reality uh, aspects to them and ceremonial aspects to them. So there's the ceremony of baptism, which is water immersion. That's a ceremony. That actually is not the baptism of salvation, but it represents symbolically the baptism of salvation. The baptism of salvation is when the soul or the mind or the, or the, the inner being is immersed or baptized in the Holy Spirit, where we die to the old man and we have a renewal with the Spirit of God that immerses and washes away the old and recreates the new. That's the baptism of salvation. It's symbolized by the baptism in water. People can go through the symbol of water baptism without ever experiencing the reality of the immersion of the Spirit. And people can experience the immersion in the Spirit and be renewed without ever going through the water baptism, like the thief on the cross who had to have gone through the immersion and heart change experience because we know Jesus told us that he will be in heaven. So, um, And marriage is the same way. There is the marriage in which the hearts are united in one, And then there are legal um, processes or ceremonies that people can go through that may or may not result in the hearts being united in one. So I think there's some similarities and lessons there. What are your thoughts on eating disorders and the connection to moralizing food? Is it possible that the wrong teachings of health message could actually serve to create an eating disorder in people, especially if exposed during childhood? Yes, that is possible that people could come to actually have moral connections to food choices and then become, uh, and, and what you will find in, in especially restrictive anorectic type eating disorders that most anorexists I've ever dealt with are very hypermoral people. They are they are good-hearted, motivated people who fear making mistakes. They they are consumed with lots of guilt, feelings of inadequacy. They want to be perfect in everything they do. They don't want to do anything wrong. They don't want to be criticized. And thus, if food becomes connected in some way with moral rightness and wrongness, it could uh, exacerbate or inflame such an eating disorder problem. How is it possible that... This is now quoting out of Matthew twenty-seven sixty-two and sixty-three. The 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 Jews who had Christ crucified. It says, "How is it possible that quote the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate?" Unquote. And then the person goes on to say, "On the Sabbath day, since they wouldn't do anything on Sabbath." No, 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 no. They would do anything they wanted basically on Sabbath. They just wouldn't do what was right on Sabbath. You have to understand, when it comes to legalism, legalists always can find loopholes for law-keeping. They will always find an exception and make it a... a, a, And so in their particular um, mindset, 
the the Sabbath day, going to Pilate on the Sabbath day, was purposely appropriate because it protected them from potential exposures, what they were going for. So this is what you will always find when you're dealing with legalists. They will always find an exception that allows them to do what they want to do. So I don't mean, uh, it just further confirmation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, person uh, text this background, the one that, that I'm in today, is better than the digital one. Thanks for changing. You're welcome. We're, we're still working and trying. This is my nine-year-old grandnephew is visiting Great Britain with his father. They are not believers. The grandnephew is in the hospital with an unknown illness. I've been praying for him and his family. I've asked fellow church members uh, for prayer for him also. It, is it scriptural to pray for healing for non-believers and expect answers for healing? Of course, uh, it is absolutely scriptural to pray for anybody that you are concerned for, and that when you pray to God in this way, multiple angles of intervention and benefit can be um, experienced. You, the person who is praying, are brought into connection with God, and you can find comfort and peace knowing that God's hand is in the circumstance. We don't know. We don't know all the variables. We don't know what's best. Uh, and so whether God intervenes to bring healing or not healing, we trust him with. And so we pray for healing. We pray in God's will wh- what is the best intervention in all the variables that we can never see. And that, uh, I think, is good for the person praying. But God hears those prayers, and he will look in, and he will. And we see the example of Daniel in, chapter, in Daniel chapter 10, where he begins praying for the king, who is not a believer. And we see that Gabriel is dispatched, and we see that satanic angels are also on the scene fighting against Gabriel. And there's a war going on now for the mind of this uh, king and the decision he's going to make. And so, yes, there is this basis for praying for people who themselves aren't believers, and God answers those prayers, but God doesn't, and when it comes to the minds and hearts of people, doesn't control those minds and hearts. There's another aspect, though, to prayer and healing, and I and I want to, uh, to mention this, and this happens to do with, to, to do with the, the infinitely small things that God has created. God is the God of the infinitely large, what we call Newtonian or Isaac Newton physics, the physics of of motion and friction and the things that that we can pick up and hold and throw and slam and touch. Uh, He's the God of the big things, the the, the Newtonian physics, and he's the God of the infinitely small things, the quantum physics, uh, the the quantum entanglement things. And a non-believing surgeon can use the... the, uh, the physics of big things to put pressure on a wound and put sutures in to stop bleeding and that person will still heal even if that person using their um, uh, own body to sew and and, uh, surgically intervene doesn't believe in God and doesn't pray because of the laws that govern those things are still in operation and God is still staining those laws. There are also quantum mechanics and quantum laws involved, and we have science that is uh, very strong demonstrating that when you pray for somebody with these two elements, love and goodwill in your heart, and intention with a specific outcome, that there are measurable outcomes that can come in a positive direction if you generate both love and goodwill and pray for a specific outcome for their good health, for instance, even if you don't believe in God. And this has been tested in multiple tests, and many people start thinking, well, does that mean there's no God? It doesn't mean there's no God anymore. Then a surgeon can bring healing, and you go, oh, well, that surgeon stopped the bleeding and saved the life, and he didn't believe in God. Does that mean there's no God? No. It means a surgeon is acting through the laws of the big things 
to do something that's beneficial. And we can, whether we believe in God or not, also use the energies and willpower and love that God has given us to pray for other people. And so can people who don't believe in God. And this has been demonstrated. And so there's the aspect of inviting God in and his divine presence acting. There's also the aspect of us bringing our own energies to bear in the circumstance. And there is good evidence that that can impact and affect outcome for healing. But notice, it only if you generate love and goodwill and focus intention. They've done this where you generate hate and animosity and pray, you have no benefit, which means the whole pagan concepts of curses and voodoo and all that is completely bogus and foreign and satanic. It's only through, because they're not working on the lines that God sustains the universe through, and God sustains the universe on the, on the threads of truth and love. So I thought that's very interesting. Don't you all? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this may sound foolish, but is uh, being one with God like being one with the Borg? And for those who don't know, it's a Star Trek reference, and the Borg were, were cyber Borgs, where one individual mind controlled the minds of all the others. Uh, how can we be one with him and still have free will and be an individual? I think that's exactly what God, the Bible teaches in marriage. The two shall become one. The man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They shall be one. And those who God has joined together, let no one uh, separate. Okay. Now, when husbands and wife, as God designed, become one as God designed, do they lose their individuality? They do not. They actually expand and enhance their... I can tell you my individuality and my abilities have been expanded in my relationship with my wife, not restricted, and she would say the same thing. And so I think the marriage example would be how we become one and we maintain our individuality. We are told that everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has given. However, God's law of love is primary, is primary uh, above man's law. With this in mind, the vaccine mandates, as ordered by men who have influence over others, were breaking God's law via the force and manipulation. However, it is my understanding that as an individual, it is not breaking God's law if I am forced or manipulated into taking the vaccine. What are your thoughts? So, if you're asking several layers of your question, but I think you're asking, am I as an individual breaking God's law if I take the vaccine under force? Well, it depends on what level of force, and it depends on what your belief is. Do you believe that it is God's will for you to take it? Then no, you're not breaking God's law. Do you believe it's God's will for your personal life for you not to take it, and you go along under pressure, then you are breaking. You're breaking God's will for your life. If you believe it's God's will for you not to take it, and they physically hold you down and jab it into your arm, you're not breaking God's law. But this is a great example uh, if for all coercion of conscience. Satan always brings coercion to bear to get people to get people to choose. If you remember, he took Jesus to the top of the temple, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said, throw yourself off. Well, they were on the top of the temple. Why didn't Satan just knock him off? Because at that point, the angels would have protected him. Because it would not have corrupted Jesus to be knocked off. But it would have corrupted Jesus for him to choose to break his trust with God and throw himself off. And that's what Satan tries to do. Bring various pressures to bear that we will then make a choice that goes against God's will for our life. Where we betray our love and our devotion and our trust for God. I think ultimately the vaccine 
uh, was was an inconsequential. It was completely inconsequential. This injection. What was consequential was how we treated our neighbors. Will we treat them with truth, love, and liberty, or will we coerce them and also ourselves? Will we give in to the coercion, or will we resist the coercion even if it costs us something? Uh, so that's what I think the bigger issue here was, and I think this was really conditioning minds to be comfortable with the idea of coercing people for a greater good, and, and that is just, just ungodly. Please share a good way to start a Bible study group, a study to study together and learn these principles. So many want to study the Bible, but most of the SDA helps are just for doctrine and rule keeping and not keeping the true nature of God's love and remedy to sin. So we have resources on our website. Uh, I would tell you to hit the start button here, but there's actually a Bible study guide on our website that you could download as a PDF and use it as a template to go through a lot of these. And they're all focused on finding, uh, focusing on the truth about the the character of God. But if you want to do a Bible study, another nice one is the is the kind of model Graham Maxwell used to do, a book-by-book book Bible study, where you pick your theme, and one theme is, what does this book say about God? And you, you go through each week, and you read a book, and you have a discussion. What does this book say about God? And what did and what does it reveal to us? And and depending on the presumption, the, the assumptions and premises that people hold, they will uh, draw different conclusions from the same stories. And that's where putting it all together, having a, a design law framework, can really help you uh, in understanding the overall narrative uh, and, the, and the story arc of Scripture will help you put, put these things in its proper setting. Hi, Doc. Tim and Come Reason Family. I often hear Tim referring to mansions or places in heaven as a metaphor. If this is true, then my thoughts are still left wondering what tangible dwellings will we have? Paul tells us that our imaginations cannot describe what it will be like, and Ellen White describes physical things, but what do you think we'll be dwelling uh, in uh, uh, when we need to take a nap and simply be alone? So, first off, uh, let's clarify. I believe we will have real physical bodies, and we will live in real universe with real physical um, objects and, and living and non-living um, substances around us. Uh, think of the earth as God made it before Adam and Eve sinned. It was a real physical planet with real trees and real plants and real animals that they could touch. And where did Adam and Eve live prior to sin? What buildings did they have to live in? Where did they go to take a nap? My understanding is we will live in an earth made new. And um, I also understand we will never really sleep. We will never get tired. We will never get fatigued. There will never be night. According to Revelation, God's presence will be here, and we will live in infinite glory and infinite light, and there will never be darkness and night. So uh, I don't know that we'll ever nap. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean we won't travel. I also believe we'll be able to travel to multiple different other planets where other intelligences are throughout an, an in, a universe that is not truly infinite, but for our finite beings, will feel infinite because we will never really stop traveling this universe and, and representing what God has done for us. So I think we will be very active in interacting with real living beings. I just don't think that the sanctuary metaphor of Scripture uh, is talking about physical buildings that we are uh, become a physical pillar in stuck in a single geographic location for alternative. That's clearly not what's being described. That's a metaphor of being part of something the Bible describes as a temple or, or, a, or a sanctuary. 
which is where God dwells by his spirit, which is the living beings. I think you get a better view of that maybe in the first chapter of Job, where the sons of God came from all over the universe to, um, to, uh, to be uh, in the presence of God, that, that we see an uh, operation of what that is like, but it's not, I don't, I don't think it's inanimate materials. And if you, uh, if you would like to make it inanimate materials, I would suggest to you to find a, um, inspired sources for that, that and, because anytime you actually look for construction material for the heavenly sanctuary, it's always living beings uh, from any inspired source. How do you show love, forgiveness, etc., to angry, hurtful narcissist? Uh, I don't even understand that question. Uh, I, that, that question, I, I don't understand it. How did Jesus show love to Judas? How did Jesus show love to Pilate? How did Jesus show love to the people who are crucifying them? A love, love is the same. Forgiveness is the same. It doesn't really matter what the other person is doing, uh, unless you're trying to say, "How do I get the?" Uh, unless the question meant to be meant to be this way, how do I get the angry, hurtful narcissist to recognize the love and forgiveness I'm giving them? That might be what you're trying to ask. Well, you don't. You, you're resp- we are responsible for living the principles of God and how we interact with others. We are not responsible for other people ever recognizing the principles of God in our life. And so, I'm, But I'm not sure I, I fully appreciate that question or understand it accurately, so I, I may not be a- a- answering what you're, you're asking. So um, if, you, if, if not, then submit a, a question with, with clarifying elements, and we'll do it again next time. And I think it's the last one. Can you explain... Or is there a blog about Jesus turning over the money exchange tables and chasing out the animals? People want to use this to say that Jesus was violent, that he will destroy sinners in the end. So, thank you for that. And that's a great example of how people will take something and project in and read something that is not there. So, first off, notice Jesus turned over the tables. How many people did he knock down? None. And the whip that he made out of cords, how many people did he hit with it? None. Well, why did he make a whip? What are animals trained to respond to? The crack of a whip. He made a whip to make the crack to drive the animals out. There's no big deal here. But people want to read into it this violent element. There's no violence here. This was Jesus acting to demonstrate that these practices will be overthrown. The practices of greed will be overthrown. uh, God's house is not based on human barter and exchange and money-making and greed and so forth. It's based on love. So he's overturning the destructive practices, and that's exactly what he came to do. Um, by uh, cleansing the hearts and minds. And Ellen White actually has a beautiful description in Desire of Ages that in cleansing the temple from the buyers and sellers, Jesus was announcing his mission to cleanse the spirit temple from sin. And that's what he was acting out. And uh, that's what he was doing. So 